uh, several years ago, uh, before we, we had kiddos, Missy and I were doing some traveling. We were in North Carolina, and we stayed at a, at a bed and breakfast. And if you ever stayed at some of these places, it was one of those big houses with lots of rooms, and then you kind of eat together in this common room. Uh, and there was another couple there, and they worked, I can't remember the movie, some movie in, on the East Coast of North Carolina, uh, but they were in like kind of the, the TV and, and movie business, so they worked on shows. I think he was the, the sound guy, so he had the boom mic, I think they call it, and she maybe didn't make up, I can't remember, but they were, they were in the mix, and they were kind of with all the, all the stars. And anyway, so we, we were chatting, and, and looking back, this might have been more gossip, so sh- shame on us, we shouldn't have done this, but we were just talking about the people they worked with. And, um, and it was kind of surprising because they would talk about some famous people that'll go nameless now. Uh, but they were saying, yeah, these people are so nice. I mean, you wouldn't even know they were big stars. I mean, like during breaks, they're hanging out with all the, you know, all, all the, all the small people just kind of helping out on the job and, and things like that. Then they would talk about some other famous people and they would say, oh, like everybody knows these people are just brutal. I mean, they're even snobs to the other famous people. And it's just like this you know, a whole different, and, and sometimes with the people they would say, it was kind of surprising because we, we kind of foolishly think we know who these people are because we see their movies and we think their, their character is, is the, the people they are. And it's just not like they're playing characters. Right. And so it was kind of surprising to learn that these people might not be who we, who we thought they were. Um, uh, another thing I like to do, this is so random. Uh, I like to read uh, biographies and sometimes really random biographies. You might you'd be kind of surprised. One I was, I was looking into was a biography by uh, Amy Poehler. Uh, y'all know her. She's uh, Leslie Nope on, on Parks and Rec. And so I was reading reviews and, and one of the negative reviews said, you know, I didn't like the book, but to be fair, it's not her fault. I picked up this book thinking it was going to be Leslie Nope, you know, the character in Parks and Rec. And it's not. It's Amy Poehler. It's not her. And so she was surprised in the sense that she was getting the story of a, of a different person. Now, the, the reason I kind of kind of bring all this up is this idea is we think we know who people are. And then something happens where we get to know them and we're, we're a bit surprised by them. We didn't think they were like that. And, and I think what should happen to us as we read the Bible, as we grow in our faith, as we get more serious with, with the Bible and what it says by God at certain points, we should be surprised at what we see. Uh, sometimes we might be surprised at how, how God gracious might be. Uh, other times, which is more probable, we might be surprised at how harsh God might seem. Um, and, and it's one of those things that we see. And so sometimes in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, Note then both the kindness and severity of our God. And so our God is kind. And our God is severe. And, and depending on, on kind of how you maybe grew up or your, your default position, then if, if you grow up thinking of God as mostly kind, then you're going to be surprised by his severity. If you grow up thinking about him being severe, then you'll be maybe surprised at his kindness. So in Joshua 2, we're introduced to a prostitute named Rahab. She lives in Jericho uh, in a city that God has devoted to destruction. So our God had this city, and he had that city devoted to destruction. Note the severity of our God. And and one person is going to be spared in this destruction. And it's not the most moral person in the city. You could argue it's the least moral person in the city. It's Rahab the prostitute. So note the kindness of our God. So Rahab will know both the severity and the kindness of God, and it will change your life forever. So I want to focus today on Rahab and four things that I think Rahab teaches us in this text. So let me begin with number one. Rahab teaches us about God's judgment. So listen to what Rahab said in verse eight. 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you have devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and above, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab knew that God was devoting to destruction certain places. And look, that might be a surprising idea in itself, and we'll get to that on on some Sundays to come. But there were two Amorite kings that that Joshua and Israel had taken out up to this this point. And, And God did not take these two kings out randomly or because they just happened to be in the way or in the land that they were going to. This had been, this had been a long time coming. In, in Genesis 15, God's making the covenant with Abraham about how I'm going to send you to this land. And when God speaks to Abraham, he speaks to him in a dream. And we read about it in Genesis 15, verse, and I'll start in verse 12. Uh, Genesis 15, verse 12 says this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on that nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So we're talking about them coming out, going, being enslaved in Egypt, then coming out of Egypt. Verse 15, As for you, you shall go to your, to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Much later, the Israelites are going to come back here and here's the reason for the delay. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, so God was going to send the descendants of Abraham, Israel, back to that land. But he, he wasn't going to do it yet because the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. Which means that at this point, the sin of the Amorites had been brewing for quite a long time, like hundreds of years. So God in his patience waited hundreds of years But now the time had come and the Amorites were about to know God's judgment and it was was going to be severe. These two kings found it and Jericho was about to find it. So I remember when I was a kid in Sunday school, one of our teachers talked about how she grew up always thinking that God was mean and just might strike her down at at any moment for any wrong thing that that she did. And I remember thinking that that was surprising to me because that's not how I thought about God. I mostly thought of God as, as loving and kind and gracious. So I didn't grow up that way. Um, I probably heard more about the, the grace and love part. But, but it's, the, the problem with, with either side of that can be, if, if someone has an understanding of God's judgment and wrath to the neglect of his love, that's going to be a problem. But if someone has an understanding of the love to the, to the, to, and his grace to the neglect of his judgment and wrath, that's going to be a problem. And, and, he, and, and there can almost be a sense where it matters kind of what order this goes into, and I would say, while it's, it's not good to separate either of them, it would, probably, it would probably be much better to understand God's judgment and wrath first and then God's love and grace, because that makes grace actually mean something. And, and here's why. When, when people have a, a fear of God and they sense that they're guilty before him and they fear punishment for sins is coming their way, But then they hear what Jesus did at the cross, that all their sins can be forgiven because they were laid on Christ. They can escape his judgment. Then it can be life-changing and grace is incredibly meaningful to them. And it can even stir their affections for God. 
However, if people assume God's love and kindness and just assume that as a, as a given and never tremble before God's judgment on them, then they can come across passages in the Bible like this, like we're going to see in Joshua, and they can have a really hard time with God's judgment on these people and maybe even think it doesn't seem fair or right of God. And we might not come out and say it, but when we see God take out these people like Jericho or these other places, then it seems like almost like God is doing something wrong. But I would say a lot of that's because we don't have a right understanding of God's holiness, his judgment, his wrath. So Rahab, you could say, was afraid of God. And she was right to be afraid of God. She knew that God was with the Israelites and they were coming her way. And that was bad news for Jericho. And it was bad news for her. And this this fear of God, this being afraid of God, provoked really good things in her. As Proverbs 1 says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And one of those good things it provoked is my second point. It was faith. So number two, Rahab teaches us about faith. So Rahab was a prostitute in an evil land. She was a bad person in a bad place. She was the worst of the worst, you could say. But she's mentioned in Hebrews 11, famously known as the Hall of Faith. And read this about her in Hebrews 11:31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So for Rahab... Her faith was operating in such a way that she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. So how is this faith operating on Rahab's part? Well, Hebrews 11.1 gives a helpful idea of what faith is. Let me read this real quick. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So Rahab had not seen God. She had not seen Israel. But she was confident about something that she had not seen. And faith, as we see in Hebrews 11.1, has a lot to do with believing things that you cannot see. And you don't need faith for what you can see. That's just sight. Like, none of you right now need to have faith that I'm preaching today. I'm just preaching today. That's, that's sight. You don't, you don't, you're not hoping for it. You're not seeing it. It's just what is. And, and so there, there's a sense where so much of what God asks of us, to, when, when he's asking us of things, deals with what is unseen. Like, I would like for God to give me a receipt or, or at least a confirmation, a confirmation number for my salvation. Hey, you, you, you did it right. Like, you believe that the true gospel, I'm real. Everything you're, you're seeing is true and right. And here's your confirmation number. Rest assured. I mean, Amazon will give me a confirmation number. Why can't God give me a confirmation number for my salvation? But that's not the, the, the deal. He, he has spoken his word that Jesus died for sins and salvation is given to all who would believe the gospel and repent. And so all I can do is trust him. What he says is true. So I have to believe in something that I cannot see. And so much of our Christian experience is going to be believing and leaning on things that we cannot see. We will often have to put our hope in things that we cannot see, like God himself or his promises. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, we read this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We cannot see God, but even though we cannot see him, we can have genuine faith that he is there. 
And sometimes that faith can even be better than sight. For example, even though no one can see God, I just don't understand how an honest thinker could be an atheist and just believe there, there is no God. And that's just based on nature, or as we like to say as Christians, it's based on creation. I mean, just the astronomical chances of our planet and our bodies operating the way they do is just a miracle. You know, how does something as complicated as the human eye develop so well that we can, that we can see? And, and, and where does the sense of smell come from? And, and how all of this works, you know, in relation to our, our brain and sig- sending signals and, and things like that. And, and why does the planet spin so consistently on these 24-hour cycles? And why does it tilt giving us these seasons where the weather changes just right, not too far, not too much, just right? Why does it spin so perfectly and, and do so so predictably? I mean, so to me, it, it just doesn't make sense without a God behind it. And, and there's a sense in which just observing nature, which we can see, is perhaps more convincing than even having a vision of God. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not merely because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. So I'm not sure, even if I did one night have this vision of God where he revealed himself to me, I'm not sure that would be better than just having creation itself. And so there's just a sense where sometimes faith might be better than sight. But Rahab had not seen God. She had not seen Israel, but she had seen the effects of this God. She'd seen the effects of Israel. So she deduced that her future was not bright. And she was not on the side of this Yahweh, of this God who was coming with Israel. And that was very bad news for her, and she knew it. So she sought out a way to escape God's judgment, which leads me to my third point, is Rahab teaches us about grace. So there was no good reason for Rahab to be spared. And you could even say that what most likely made Rahab a good candidate for salvation was that she was not a good candidate for salvation. And it's surprising how the scriptures often talk about prostitutes in a positive light. When, when a prostitute comes up in Scripture, it's usually God being gracious and gentle with them. Now, I, I don't need to say this, but I will. The Scriptures clearly condemn prostitution and any kind of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. But when, when prostitutes or people in adulterous relationships encounter God, God is often surprisingly gracious and gentle with them even showing them, them honor in some ways. Like in, in the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, it goes through all, all the fathers leading down to, to Jesus. And so all of these fathers that get mentioned, there's only four women in that genealogy that get mentioned. And three out of those four women had significant sexual sins in their story. But, but our God thought it good to have them mentioned and them honored in that genealogy. You know, first you had Tamar. She disguised herself as a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law, Judah. Then you have Bathsheba. She had an affair with David while her husband was away at war. And then there's Rahab, known as the prostitute. In John 8, we read about the woman caught in adultery who was about to be stoned. Jesus stopped, stopped it by saying, let him without sin throw the first stone. In Matthew 21, 31, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
go into kingdom, to, to the kingdom of God before you. Shady government officials doing shady things and women who sleep with men for money enter the kingdom of God before the religious people do. So when it comes to entering the kingdom of God, those kind of people, the worst of the worst, have an advantage advantage over the religious crowd. And why is that? The reason is because they're the ones that look away from themselves. Uh, they, They look away from their own efforts at being good enough for God and simply cry out for mercy. Think about the parable that Jesus told about the two men who went up to pray. One went up to to pray and he thanked God for what a good guy he had become. And the other just went and wept over his sin and cried out for God to have mercy on him. Jesus says the one who wept and cried for mercy is the one who went away justified. Rahab, she was not a diamond in the rough. She was a bad person in a bad town. She was part of the worst of the worst. And God showed her mercy. She did not deserve it for being a good person. And you might say, what you could say is you could say, well, she, she kind of had a, had, a, had a turning point. She, she had this, the, the spies came in and she helped them out. And so, so God kind of helped her out because she helped him out. And there was kind of a deal there. Rahab was not lucky. You know, these spies didn't just come in and happen on this place. And man, really fortunate for, for, for Rahab. We talked last, last week, and I, and I said this, and I'll, I'll say it forever. As Christians, we do not believe in luck or chance. Whatever comes to pass comes from God's fatherly hand. And so if you read this passage and you think, lucky Rahab, these spies happened to come into her place. Know this, it was not luck, it was not chance. Our God was pursuing Rahab the prostitute. Not the, not the most moral of a bad bunch. Arguably the worst of the worst. So God sought out Rahab and prostitutes like her to be gracious to them. He's making a point here. He's not making a point that, hey, if you really do your part and if you really try hard enough and set your mind to it, then I'll be gracious to you. He's looking at the worst of the worst to be gracious to them. And, and, and sometimes we might think, and this wouldn't be wrong, that God saves us so that we can do good works. And, and that's true. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Titus 2, we, we read that we're saved to do good works. But that's not the only thing we're saved for. God also saves us so that he can show off his graciousness. He saves us to lavish his grace on us and that the glory of his grace could be known. Now, lastly, let me teach about what Rahab teaches us about works. In James 2, Rahab is mentioned. uh, And we read uh, what can be to some a, a very difficult verse and it might even seem to undermine everything I just said about grace and what, and what the rest of the Bible says about grace in a lot of ways. Uh, it's James 2, 24 to 26. I'll read it. It says this. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what's difficult about that verse uh, is there seems to be a disagreement between what James says here so clearly 
And what Paul says just as clearly in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. But, but faith and works, they're, they're a package deal. They're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Genuine faith will have works every time. Genuine faith, faith must even begin with repentance, which is in a sense a work. Faith produces works or else that faith isn't real faith. And Martin Luther, who struggled over this, put it well when he said this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves will never be alone. Rahab had genuine faith that God was coming to judge and destroy Jericho. So she did something. She asked to be delivered from the coming judgment. And when she did, uh, and when she, when she met with the spies, she did what the spies told her to do. And eventually, that day came when Israel attacked, she was spared. And if you think back to another story with Lot, when he was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he went back and he told his family, you need to leave. God's about to destroy this place. If you remember what Lot's family did, they did nothing. They just hung around. They didn't leave. And the reason they didn't leave is because they didn't have faith. If they would have believed it, they would have gotten out. And it, wouldn't have been there. it isn't that they were condemned by their works. Just, they didn't believe it. Lot believed it, so he left. Rahab believed this, so... So she did what she did. It just made sense. It would have been foolish for her not to. And so it is with Christians who have known God's grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says it very well. It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The thing that makes us renounce ungodliness and live godly lives is not self-discipline. It's the grace of God. And look, I'd imagine for all of us, we have some kind of sin that we might be wrestling with right now. All of us have our, the, the, the different struggles we have. I don't know what yours might be, but I can tell you this. I don't think the cure to that issue is self-discipline. I think that can help for a minute. You know, maybe get you, get you through a day I think what changes us deeply and thoroughly is the grace of God. And the grace of God has just no meaning unless you've ever trembled before the holiness and judgment and wrath of God. And if you get this, if you get that God's judgment and punishment is due you and it makes sense, then his grace will actually mean something and then you might be surprised by it. And look, let me back up. And I think as we go through Joshua, we're going we're to wrestle through this. If you find yourself currently not very surprised by grace, but see grace is more of a, of, of a given, then, then that's going to be a problem. And if as we go through Joshua and we see God telling Joshua, go kill these people, and that seems unfair, then there's a sense where, where we've lost track of God's holiness uh, and, and the sinfulness of man and the, and the great distance between those two, and the judgment that is due that sin. So, may God help us to see him as severe, and ourselves as pitiful sinners, so that we can be surprised by his kindness and his grace. And may that pardoning grace make us like Rahab the prostitute, Knowing we deserve God's judgment, but being genuinely surprised by his grace and his mercy. And if we are surprised by his grace 
and his mercy, then we just might find our affections for God and for Jesus being deeply stirred and to the point where it makes that sin that was so attractive to us, it makes it ugly and and we don't want it. And so may our affections be stirred by the grace of God, as the the words say in the song we're about to sing, thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. Let's pray. Father, help us to know you as you truly are. Help us to know your holiness, your just judgment, our condition as, as sinners who are guilty, who are worthy of your judgment and punishment and wrath. Help us to to see how your kindness and mercy is displayed on the cross, that you had your son killed on the cross, died, buried, and that was severe. And that in your kindness and grace, that can count for us, that we need not fear your judgment as Jesus has taken it for us. And so would you help us to be surprised by that grace, that we would always see ourselves as unworthy of it, And would that stir our affections to deep devotion to you? And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.